You know, that uh, song that Jeff led us in at the end there, New Wine, is a song that the first time I ever heard it uh, didn't make much sense to me because I don't like wine. Um, I, I think it's gross. I do like coffee, though, and I quite like chocolate. And uh, I've met a few people who don't like chocolate, and I have a hard time, you know, really understanding where they're coming from. But I've learned something. Both coffee and chocolate take the same basic preparation. After you get the beans off of the tree where they grow, they have to go through a long process of roasting, fermenting, drying, maybe a second time of roasting, and crushing. And what makes coffee or what makes chocolate exactly the right kind of coffee or chocolate, whatever you want, depends entirely on the processing and the crushing. You crush it too much, it might turn bitter. You crush it too little, it might be too uninteresting. But if it gets crushed just the right amount, something beautiful happens. You know, this is Father's Day. It's a day that a lot of times we have thoughts about our fathers, thoughts about the father figures in our lives. And one of the passages in the New Testament is that... um, There's this passage in Hebrews where it says, all of us were disciplined by our fathers. And we didn't think it was pleasant at the time, but in the long run, it produced something good. Now, maybe your fatherly discipline didn't produce something good in your heart towards your father, but today I want to take you in a direction that I think is going to draw you closer to that awareness of what God is really all about, what your heavenly father is really all about. I I heard a YouTuber say that 2019 was like a dumpster fire, and he was looking so forward to 2020. Well, he said this back in December, and now we're halfway through 2020, and some of you are like, dumpster fire? At least that's contained to a dumpster. Um, 2020 has been a, a, a rather weird year, a messed up year, a crushing sort of year. Just last night, uh, my family got word that my nephew's in the hospital, And um, so as we speak, my my wife might be driving up there to South Bend to spend time with the family and to to pray through whatever's going on there. I don't have uh, opportunity to get into a lot of details about all that stuff. I'd invite you to pray for me and my family during this time too. And man, 2020, it's like every single time you turn the corner, something else is getting crushed. Maybe your spirit's getting a little bit crushed. Well, I want to let you know that the same God who invented the beans that we turn into coffee and chocolate and the grapes that we turn into wine, the same God who created all the processes of this natural world that leads from one thing being interesting to another thing being beautiful and the thing in between being challenge, is the same God who's in charge of 2020 and hasn't stopped. And so I want to ask you to join me in a time of prayer where we hand ourselves once again over to our heavenly dad and say, God, whatever it is that you are doing in me, through me, with me, around me, let us see the beauty and let us be patient as we wait for it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so incredibly grateful that you're a God who hasn't given up on us yet. We are so incredibly grateful that you're a God who hasn't given up on this world yet. 
We're so incredibly grateful that in your word, you've already told us to expect things like this. You already told us to expect wars and rumors of wars. You already told us to expect famines and diseases and pestilences. You already told us to expect lawless people in power. You already told us to expect all these sorts of things. You gave it to us all way in advance. And you said... But just don't worry, because I have overcome the world. And you said, but just don't worry, your salvation is near. And you said, but just hold on, because he who remains to the end, who is faithful through it all, will be saved. Lord Jesus, you have given us such incredible promises. And even though we're going through a world that we, for many of us, have never seen it worse, you're still a God who said, I knew it was coming. It's just part of the story because the answer hasn't come yet. The story hasn't been finished yet. I'm still your dad and I still love you. Father, I pray today that you'd help us to get a glimpse of your love. You'd help us to reignite our passion and our faith and our trust in you as the God who's in charge of all these things. And that in the midst of all the struggles and pain and hardship that we're working through, in the midst of sicknesses and hospital visits, in the midst of frustrations and lockdowns, in the midst of fear and confusion, in the midst of broken relationships, God, we pray that you would remind us that you are the God still in charge and that in the crushing, you are making new wine. And so we give ourselves to you all over again. And we say, would you lead us into that place where you have for us? Would you help us to get a glimpse of the new wine that you're making? Would you help us to get a glimpse of the new world that is coming? And in the meantime, would you give us patience and strength and faithfulness to be the people who stick with you no matter what is going on around us? Lord, we love you. We give ourselves to you again. I pray that you'd guard the words that I speak and the thoughts in our hearts and that everything here in this place and everything wherever we may be experiencing this moment would bring you honor and glory. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we've been in the series for one week so far. This is the second week. And the three key words that are the framework for this series of messages are these. Our heavenly dad. These are sort of the central words for anyone who would claim to be a follower of Jesus. When Jesus said, I want you to learn how to pray, he said, here's how you pray. Our father who is in heaven. And then later on when the apostle Paul would emphasize the kind of father relationship we have with our heavenly father, he would use the Aramaic word Abba, which sometimes is translated daddy, or it's, it's the word dad, the first word that a baby speaks. And so here's the idea that we have a heavenly dad and all three of these words are life transforming. The God who created the world wants to relate to you like a dad. And he's not just any normal dad. He is the heavenly dad. He can beat up your dad and any other dad that's out there. Whatever you're facing, he can handle it. And he's not just your dad, and he's not just your heavenly dad. He is our heavenly dad. He's building a family. And so over these a few weeks, we're going to spend some time just really wrestling with the implications of God being our heavenly dad. Not just for me, not just for you, but for a wide family. 
Pastor Reggie was going to be teaching from Luke chapter 15 today. And even though I'm not going to be preaching his message, I am stealing his passage. And so, uh, Reggie, if you're listening to this, I want to let you know that you're, I'm fine with you re-preaching the same message in your own way some other time. But I'm tackling it today because, hey, I told you I would. Anyway, so what we're going to be dealing with is we're going to jump into Luke 15. But before we get there, I need to explain to you why I have this bucket on, on the stage. This is my son's candy bucket. And you're saying, candy bucket? I'm saying, yeah, it's, it's his candy bucket. And you're saying, well, wait a minute, isn't your son in college? And I say, yeah, yeah, my son is a sophomore at Taylor University, and this is his candy bucket from our house. Inside, you can see some of his candy. I don't know if you can get a good shot of that, but there's some candy in here, and we've got some, some well, I'll, I'll walk you through this candy in a little bit, but what I want to point out to you is that some of this candy in his candy bucket is years old. Um, we've got some Christmas peeps, we got some gummy bears, we got uh, some uh, Pringles and some mint uh, wintergreen uh, lifesavers. So some of this candy is years old. And you might be asking, Jeff, how in the world did you raise such an amazing son that could allow candy to go uneaten in the house? We have always had candy buckets for our children, and those candy buckets have always been filled with um, candy that has taken them forever to eat. And so you're saying, Jeff, how could you be such an incredible father to raise such self-controlled children? Um, well, I will tell you the secret at the end of the message, so you might want to hang on till then. Um, and maybe we'll all learn something from it anyway. But Luke 15, before we get into the most famous parable Jesus has told, it's the one you've probably heard of as the prodigal son. And before we get to this most famous parable that Jesus tells, a story, remember a parable is a story that Jesus would tell to illustrate some sort of spiritual truth by giving people a metaphor. Now, the prodigal son is one of the few parables in the Bible that gets zero explanation because its meaning is so obvious. It's so on the surface. It's easy for us to grasp. But in order for you to really get the meaning, you have to at least know the context. So I'm going to take you for a few verses before that into verse 8. And Luke 15 verse 8 gives us a little bit of context. Jesus tells three stories in chapter 15 of Luke. These three stories are known as the lost stories. The first story is the story of a lost sheep, where one sheep wanders away, and then the shepherd goes out to find that sheep, leaving 99 in the fold, and then he rescues the one sheep, brings it back, and there's this line in the story where Jesus says, in the same way the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner is brought back from the error of his ways. Then we pick it up again here in verse 8, which is his second lost story in the chapter. I'll put it up here on the screen. It'll be on the words underneath me. It says, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus tells three stories in Luke 15. The first two stories, he gives us the answer. He gives us the meaning. He gives us the moral of the story. Where after the lost thing has been found, he specifically says, there's rejoicing in heaven over a sinner who repents. In other words, Jesus has set it up 
so that in these two stories, something is lost, and the lost thing represents the sinner. And then after the thing is found, there's a celebration, and the celebration represents heaven. Now, in the first story, you might conclude that the shepherd represents Jesus, or in fact, God himself, the father who would be reaching out to find the lost one. Jesus himself said he came to seek and to save what was lost, and so we would conclude that probably the shepherd is Jesus himself talking about himself. And then the lost coin is a woman who searches for it. And you might say, well, what does the woman represent? Well, it means the same thing as the other stories. The one who has lost the thing, the one who is missing the thing, represents the Father in heaven, represents the activity of God who would send his son to seek and to save the lost or who would himself look. And you might say, well, wait a minute, God is using a a woman metaphor for himself? Yeah, he's okay with that. Don't worry about it. Don't stress about it. The next story is going to be a very similar one, but Jesus doesn't give us any moral at the end. He doesn't explain himself at the end. And so the reason I'm sharing this context with you is you've got to realize there is a lost person who represents a sinner, and then there is a person who has lost the lost thing, and the one who has lost the lost thing is symbolic of your heavenly father. And in this story, he throws a twist by adding a third character into the mix. So I want to take you there. It's Luke chapter 15, and I'm just going to read you the whole story because I think you're probably already familiar with it, and so if I try to stop and explain it as we go through it, then you're going to be, your brain's going to be racing ahead anyway. So I'm going to read it mostly. I'll take a few pauses here and there just to highlight a few things, but then we'll spend most of our explanation time after we've read it. Here we go. In verse 11 is where we begin. Jesus continued, there's our proof that Jesus is still on the same theme as he's been in the rest of the chapter. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, There was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Just side note, he's telling, Jesus is telling the story to Jewish people. Jewish people hate pigs. Jewish people are not allowed to touch pigs. And so for a Jewish person to be feeding pigs, shepherding pigs, farming pigs is the most degrading of all degrading things. Because it means he's not only working as a slave, he's also working as a slave to a dirty, piggy Gentile. It's the lowest of the lowest of the lowest jobs a Jewish person could have. He looked to fill, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, I love that line. It's like when he woke up and realized what was happening. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, His father saw him 
and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have prepared a speech to give you, and so I am now going to give you my speech. Pay attention here. It's exactly the same words. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but the father. Doesn't even let him finish his speech. And he said to his servants, when the son was about to say, make me like one of your servants, the father shuts up the son and talks to the servants. The father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Just like the other two stories. The lost thing has been recovered. And the celebration happens. Except this story had another character in it. In the first story, we don't know how the 99 felt when the shepherd left them to go after the one. But in this story, we do. Meanwhile, verse 25, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Jesus doesn't give any moral to this story, but it should be obvious to us at this point in time. In most of Jesus' parables, there are two characters. There's a character that represents you and there's a character that represents God. In most of Jesus' parables, that's what happens. We already saw that in the first two parables. There's a person that represents you, the sheep or the lost coin. And there's a character that represents God, the woman who's searching or the shepherd who's searching. And in this one, we get three characters. It's one of the few parables that has three characters in it. And it's highly important that you understand what's happening with these three characters so that you can find your place in this story. Because Jesus is intentionally telling a story that has two places where you might fit. In fact, there's actually a third place where you might fit as well. Let's trace each one of these characters one at a time. Character number one is, of course, the young son. We start with him. The young son comes up to his father and he says to his father, go ahead and give me my inheritance so that I can go and uh, do whatever I want with it. Now, you have to understand the significance of that. The significance of that is a child walking up to his father, holding his father's will. And he says to his father, Dear Dad, in your last will and testament, you declare that I am supposed to have this, 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 and this. Well, guess what, God? Dad, you're not dead yet. And um, I want my stuff now. 
What that's actually saying is, Dad, you're as good as dead to me now, so let me have my stuff. That's what he's saying. He says, I want my inheritance now. He's the younger son. Traditionally in that culture, what would happen is that the older son would get a double portion and all the other sons would get a single portion. This family only has two sons. That means the older son is going to get two-thirds of the estate. The younger son is going to get one-third of the estate. The older son is going to run the estate and the younger son is going to have to move out. That's the way it's going to work. The younger son has to establish himself. The older son is going to run the estate of the father with two-thirds of the estate, the younger son is going to get one-third. The younger son says, hey, listen, I don't have a future here. But can you imagine the heart of the dad when he hears the younger son say, it's, dad, you're as good as dead to me. Just let me have my stuff. Let me go. I'm sure the father's heart would have been broken. But the father says, yes, the son goes and he spends it all. The key word for the younger son is the word entitlement. You see, the younger son has this approach that says, Dad, I've been with you my whole life, and one of these days I'm entitled to this amount, and so I just want it now. What I'm entitled to, I want now. Let me have it now because I'm not only entitled to it, I'm also entitled to make my own decisions about it, so let me have it now. I'm not exactly saying that entitlement is a particular sin or a particular illness in our world today, but I am saying I have seen it in a lot of places and in a lot of people. Maybe that's touching a nerve for you, but for most of us, when we hear the word entitlement, we point our fingers at the other person. We point our fingers at the other person that we don't think is entitled to much, but they think they're entitled to something, and so we blame other people for feelings of entitlement. I'm not exactly sure where you land in all that. I'm just saying the younger son is the easy one for us to all point our fingers at. It's easy to point our fingers at the younger son and say, who does he think he is? Especially when he goes off and he squanders all of his wealth and then the famine hits and he's got nothing. And there's an interesting place where the son gets to when he's at his lowest, lowest, lowest point. And he says, well, If I go back to my dad, maybe he can hire me. Maybe I can have a job with him. I want to come back to a a thought in there in the son's mind, but not just yet. Right now, I want to turn my attention to the older son. The older son is the son who's been there this whole time. He's watched it all happen. The older son is the one who feels responsible. One of these days, he's going to have to be in charge of the entire estate One of these days, he's going to have to actually release a third of the estate because his dad's going to be dead. He has to release a third of his estate to this younger brother of his that he's probably been skeptical of for a long time. And so here's the older brother, and he's watching all this play out. The younger son says, Father, I'm entitled to a third. Give it to me now. And I imagine the older son has got this sense of injustice. Who does he think he is? Who does he think he is, this younger son? Who does he think he is acting like our father is dead? Well, good riddance to him. And then he goes off and bad things happen to him and he hears the rumors. Remember, he's out in the field, right? He's in the field when the son comes back. He's in the field when the son comes back. That means he doesn't know the son is back. That means he doesn't know any of the story the son has told. That means when he says This son of yours who has squandered his money on prostitutes, he has heard it through the grapevine. And if the 
older son has heard it, then maybe the father has heard it too. Maybe everybody knows what this son has been doing. Maybe the son of a very famous wealthy farmer is famous himself. And so the older son, he knows the story. And the older son comes back and he's like, what are you doing throwing a party for this guy? That's not fair. The key word for the older son is fairness. He is the one who's pointing his finger at the entitlement person. He's the one who says, listen, I'm responsible for my own life. I have obeyed the Father. I have earned my position. You have wasted it. You don't deserve anything. This isn't fair. I can almost imagine him as a petulant child stomping his feet and saying, dad, this isn't fair. I mean, that's effectively what he says there. He says, I've been with you, I've been obedient the entire time, and this son of yours has wasted your wealth, which is going to eventually be his wealth. Because if, listen, if the younger son gets reintroduced into the family, that means a third of the entire estate has now been squandered. But if he's reinstituted as a part of the family, if he's a son again, then when the father dies, this guy's going to get another third. And the older brother is the one who's going to suffer. And the older brother is pointing his finger of fairness at the son of entitlement. And he says, you don't deserve anything. What's interesting is that both the younger son and the older son have believed in the same lie. The younger son comes back to the dad. He says, Dad, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me a slave. This is what he's saying. He's saying, Dad, I don't deserve to be considered your son. So let me just be a servant. The older brother says, you don't deserve to be considered a son. The younger brother says, my older brother deserves to be a son. He doesn't mention anything about the older brother needing to have something done to him. He's leaving that one alone because he's already a son. He deserves to be a son. The older brother says to his dad, I deserve to be your son. See, both of them have believed the same lie. They believe the lie that They get what they deserve. This is a very interesting thing because I've been raised in the church. I've been raised as a person who understands that you do good things because God asks you to do good things. I'm a person who is raised in an environment where I was taught, please God by serving God. Please God by worshiping God. Glorify God by worshiping God. Tell other people how good God is. Spread this message of God. And so I've been raised in this environment where deep down inside my head, I have grown to believe the same lie that both the younger son and the older son have believed. You get what you deserve. And I am inclined because I have lived a life of the older son. I have lived a life where I have done most of the things right. I have it very easy to point my finger at another person and say, you don't deserve that. Look at who I am. Look at where I'm standing. I'm standing here in the place that I deserve. I've done the right things. You haven't done the right things. You don't deserve anything. Who do you think you are to feel so entitled? 
And I've said that to people who have been the younger son. But the truth of the matter is, both of them have believed something incredibly false about the dad. Let me trace for you the dad's story in all of this. At the very beginning of the story, the son comes up, says, Dad, you're dead to me. Give me my money. And the father says, yes. What's up with that? That kid deserves a smack in the face. That kid deserves to be sent to his room without dinner. That kid deserves something, but not a yes. Father, you're dead to me. Give me my money. Okay. The son goes off. The father hears the rumors. I'm certain he's heard the rumors. I'm certain he knows this story because Jesus tells us the older son knows the story, and so the father knows the story. But while the son is still a long way off, the father sees him. That means the father was looking for him. That means the father was waiting for him. That means the father was longing for him, and the father runs to him. The son doesn't deserve that. He deserves to take every dirty, dusty, slow step back to the farm in the walk of shame. He deserves every one of those shameful steps. But the father shortens the steps. He runs to him. The son is giving his speech. Father, I am no longer worthy. Shut up, says the dad. Don't you dare tell me who I value. Don't you dare tell me whether I think you're worthy. The father says, quick, get the real servants. Put a ring on his finger. He's my son. Kill the fattened calf. We're going to celebrate. This kid deserves a smack in the face. He deserves to become a servant. He deserves to be in the pit with the pigs. The father says, don't you dare tell me who I consider valuable. And then the father's in with the party. And pouting older son is outside. And the father goes out to him. Let the, let the dude pout outside. It's his own fault he's not having any fun. Let him go ahead and experience whatever kind of pouting he wants to experience. But no, the father goes to that one too. The father goes out to the older son too. And then when he's talking to the older son, the older son says, come on, dad, I've lived here, I've obeyed you, I've never disobeyed you, and you've never given me anything. And the father says something astonishing. He says two things. He says, son, you are always with me. I'm always with you. One This guy ran away from me. And I will never run away from you. The father says to the son, you've got me. That's one thing. The father says to the son, another thing. Everything I have is yours. On the one hand, that's legally true. Because everything that's left in the estate unless this guy gets reintroduced into the will, which we don't know if that's going to happen, but everything that's left in the estate is literally and legally the older son's because the younger son got his inheritance, and so everything left is legally the older son's. The father says, everything I have is yours. That's legally true, but the father was saying something even bigger than that. He was saying something bigger than that because he's saying to his older son, literally, everything I have ever had has always been all yours. 
What do you mean you never asked for a goat? That's not on me for not giving you a goat. You didn't ask for the goat. If you had, I'd have said yes. You see, the younger son was about entitlement. The older son was about fairness. But the father, he goes out of his way at every step to show grace. Grace is a weird word. Grace is such a weird word. Everything I have is yours. The idea of grace is the father who says yes to a stupid request. Is the father who says, be quiet when you say you don't deserve something. Is the father who says, I'm going out to the pouting son. I am running up the hill to the walk of shame, son. Is the father who says, I will celebrate you. Is the father who says, you will never not be my child. Is the father who says, all I have is yours. See, we live in a weird world where we have adopted for ourselves one of the most deeply desperately terrible lies. And it's a worse lie among Christians. And it was a worse lie among the Israelites to whom Jesus was telling this story. You see, Jesus was telling the story to a crowd full of Israelites. That's why he used the pig illustration. And he's been telling these other two stories about a lost sheep and a lost coin because he's trying to make the point to the people who are listening that God loves and cares for the people who are the outsiders, the people that he would search for, the people that he would go after. And now he's bringing them back. And Jesus is the king who is bringing the lost souls into the family. And the Jewish people are the ones who are crossing their arms and looking disdainfully They're racists against the Gentiles. They are religionists against the the Samaritans. And they are saying there is no way that we can accept these new people coming into this faith. And Jesus is calling them out as the older brother. They're saying, but God, you're not being fair. We've been following Abraham and Moses our whole lives. And God says, when have I ever been fair? Let me tell you something about the older brother. You didn't deserve to be born into that family. Someone else took care of that. You didn't deserve to be born into a rich family. Someone else took care of the riches. You didn't deserve to stay there in that rich family. Someone else did something for you that helped you feel like you could stay. Everything that the older brother is, is because of grace. And the older brother would say, I deserve what I'm getting. And the father would say, no, you don't. Because, see, the father is saying, all I have is yours. I want to take you to one of the most desperately true truths of anyone who has ever been close to God. Write this down. Those who live a long time with grace forget that it's grace. Those who live a long time with grace forget that it's grace. The young son, he felt entitled. 
Give me my stuff, let me go. The older son, he felt a kind of fairness. He'd put in the work, he'd put in the effort. And those who have lived a long time with grace forget that it's grace. If you've been a Christian for a while, thank God. None of that's you. It's the God who revealed himself to you that you should thank. It's the God who died for you that you should thank. It's the God whose spirit is in you that you should thank. It's the God who has helped you live whatever moral life you have lived and has helped you overcome whatever sin you have overcome. That's God's doing. I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't be engaging in spiritual disciplines. I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't try to grow. I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't develop in any of these ways. What I'm saying is once you have developed, you look over your shoulder and don't pat yourself on the back. You say, God, thank you for pushing me. God, thank you for crushing me. God, thank you for moving me. Because God is the God of grace. And sometimes you're wallowing in a pit of pigs and sometimes you're out in the field of riches, but God is always a God of grace. And if you've been with him too long, you can lose the picture. And you can begin to think that you're deserving of all of this. That you understand all of this. That your knowledge has achieved some high plane. That your opinions are somehow sanctified by God. Those who've lived a long time with grace forget that it's grace. But there's another thing. There's a world of people around us that have never lived with grace at all. And the only time they will ever get a glimpse of grace is when they get kindness from us. Listen, we could be the older brother and we could point our fingers at the world and we could say, but let's, let's be fair, God. I pulled myself up from my own bootstraps, so should they. Let's be fair, God. I worked hard for this position that I have, so should they. Let's be fair, God. We shouldn't ever engage in any sort of thing that lifts another person up artificially while I still stay at the same plane because lifting another person up artificially, that doesn't make sense, God. I deserve everything I'm getting. And God would say, shut up. Since when have I been the God who gives you what you deserve? The only reason you stand where you stand is because of grace. And there's some people in this world, for some reason that God has chosen, have received more grace in more earthly ways than others. And there's some people who have received more grace in spiritual ways than others. Jesus would say, blessed are the poor in spirit. The older brother would say, but dad, affirmative action is just unfair, lifting up this son of yours. And the dad would say, since when have I ever been fair? Fairness isn't in God's vocabulary. God is a God of grace. There's a lesson I want you to learn from the father. And there's a lesson I want you to learn from the son, the younger one, and there's a lesson I want you to learn from the older son. If you're a father today, I want to let you know a quick trick to how to get your children to be self-controlled with candy. Are you ready? It's very simple. My children would get this bucket. My daughter's bucket looks a little more girly. 
In fact, I think this might have been my daughter's bucket at one point. I don't know. I don't even remember. But um, the buckets, whenever the kids would get candy, Halloween, Christmas, Easter, birthdays, whatever, uh, the candy would go into the bucket. All of it. 100%. It would always go into the bucket. And I told my kids early, early on in their life, if you ever want some candy, you need to ask me. But I did something. Just a couple weeks ago, I was asking Katie, we were talking about the candy buckets, and I was like, Katie, how is it that you and Charlie never developed any sort of, you know, sneaking into the candy bucket and just taking whatever you wanted and eating it all? How in the world did you develop such self-control? And she said, Dad, I was always afraid to ask you. And I said, really, you were afraid to ask me? Why? She goes, I don't know. Every time I asked, you said yes. And I said, there you go, Katie. See, the only trick that Jen and I ever employed with the candy bucket is to always say yes. I cannot recall a single time when the kids have asked for a piece of candy and I said no unless it followed my wife's announcement that dinner was ready. So she would say, dinner's ready. My daughter would say, could I have a piece of candy? And I would say, Dinner is literally ready. We're going to have dinner. That's the only time I can ever remember saying a no. We said yes every single time they asked for it. And as a result, they grew up with a self-control mechanism because even though we said yes every single time, there was this sense that they were a little bit hesitant to ask me. Listen, I'm not telling you that I did psychological health or damage to my children in this process. I'm not exactly sure. Counselors will have to determine that in the future. All I know is this. If you're a parent of grace, you're creating an environment for your kids that is one they can grow up into, understanding a little bit more of their heavenly father. And I hope in some respects I've done that for my kids. But there's a bigger lesson that I think you and I need to learn. The lesson from the dad is that you should be a person of grace because your heavenly father is a person of grace. The lesson from the younger son is that it doesn't matter how dirty or muddy you are, It doesn't matter how far you've wandered. It doesn't matter how much you've squandered. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you think you are or what you think you deserve. There is a God who will shut you up when you start to say you're not worth anything because he is too excited to wrap you in his arms and bring you back into his family. Don't you dare ever think that you are too far away from God to come back. He is hungry for you. He loves you. And he cannot wait until he can throw the party at your return. And then there's the lesson of the older brother. Maybe you find yourself in his position. It's hard for you to admit that. But every single person who has begun to to lose the taste of grace is a person who finds themselves in the position of the older brother. The next time you find yourself pointing your finger at someone and saying, that's not fair, who do they think they are? They don't deserve that. That is exactly the moment when you have entered into older brother life. And that is exactly the moment when you need to realize there's a party going on for those who come back. It's my job to make the party a little bit bigger. Make the party a little bit better. Jump in with both feet. I want to encourage you to be a person who learns a lesson from this passage and who says it doesn't matter 
what I think about fairness or entitlement. What matters is whether or not I'm going to join my Heavenly Father in being a person of grace. Our Heavenly Dad has never been fair. And I am so glad. I am so glad for that. Let me encourage you this week, in whatever environment you're in, to not fall into the uh, deception, to not fall into the temptation to be the fair brother who's pointing a finger at entitlement. Let me encourage you to not fall under the deception of being the entitlement brother who's just looking for a blessing for your own personal names. Let me encourage you to not be the disgruntled and distraught brother who thinks he's not worthy of coming back. And let me encourage you to be a person who is entirely focused on the grace of your heavenly dad. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.